Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Judge Business Debate. My name is Michael Kitson, I'm an economist here at the Judge Business School in Cambridge. In this series, specialists from the Cambridge Judge Business School and the wider Cambridge community discuss and debate topical issues of business and management. In today's session, we are focusing on risk and uncertainty. Increasing the world seems to be a volatile and uncertain place, which has implications for us all, as well as for businesses and for nation states. What are the implications of living and working in a volatile world? Today, my guests are, first of all, Jennifer Daffron, who's Head of Cyber Research at the Centre for Risk Studies at Cambridge Judge Business School. Joachim Runda, who's Professor of Economics and Organisation at the Cambridge Judge Business School. And Danny Ralph, Professor of Operations Research and Academic Director of the Centre for Risk Studies at Cambridge Judge Business School. So welcome all three of you. We are living in a volatile, risky, uncertain world. We have geopolitical uncertainty, challenges to implement climate change mitigation, cybersecurity, and as we speak, the emergence of a possible trade war. How do we deal with these challenges? These are the issues we're going to address today. The first issue really I want is one of clarification. We discuss the issues of risk, we discuss the issues of uncertainty, but what are the differences between risk and uncertainty? Jochen, perhaps you'd kick off and tell us, what do you think about the differences between risk and uncertainty and provide some clarification for us? Well, the distinction has a very old history in economics. And uh, very often when economists speak about risk, they mean situations in which um, people are making decisions and they have numerical probabilities to go on. And um, the clearest examples of that are fair games of chance or perhaps when one has uh, stable frequencies and one can talk about the probability in terms of a number of successful outcomes of a certain type in um, a long run of experiments, so the proportion of outcomes. Um, uncertainty, on the other hand, is often defined as situations in which people have to make decisions and they don't have numerical probabilities to go on. Um, this distinction goes back a long way. It goes back to um, the last century and uh, to two very famous economists. Uh, Frank Knight in, um, in America in a famous book called Risk, Uncertainty and Profit. I think it was published about 1921. And then um, in this country, uh, John Maynard Keynes, the famous Cambridge father of macroeconomics, who, um, whose first uh, serious academic work was actually not in economics but in probability. Um, he published a book in 1921 um, called A Treatise on Probability. And um, it's really on the basis of that book that the economists tend to take him very seriously when in his later economic writings he writes about uncertainty. And for Keynes, um, the situations in which um, people do actually have probabilities to make decisions are very rare in economic life. And that generally when we are making decisions it's under situations of uncertainty. Um, Keynes would have argued that in many cases we can make qualitative comparisons of probability but that in most cases, we just don't have the numbers to go on. So does that mean increasingly when we're thinking about risks, we're actually talking about uncertainties? I think that um, my, own, my own view would be that, that um, um, even situations where attempts are made to quantify risk, at the end of the day, um, they're not like um, um, stable frequencies or they're not like the situation you'd find in, in a casino and that um, therefore they should really be classified as situations of uncertainty. So, so, so Danny, are you mainly studying risks or uncertainties or both? Um, in the risk centre we have a broad rule which is the biggest sin is not to study something 
uh, simply because we lack, uh, we feel either the theory or the data uh, to try to quantify it. And so rather than uh, putting it on one side and saying it's too hard, it's, in other words, that it's an uncertainty and non-quantifiable and we shouldn't approach it, except by qualitative means we force ourselves to put it on the table with things which can be quantified. So an example might be what's the chance of um, a large global conflict in a given period of time. And you would uh, intuitively agree that trying to put a probability or a size against that, it's very, very difficult relative to um, the probability of an earthquake of a given size in a given location. So one seems physical, one seems scientific, the other is deeply bound up in um, society and what we'd call the world of people. Uh, perhaps it's a man-made catastrophe in the system. Um, nevertheless, we would attempt to talk about things like frequencies from history and try to imagine how those, the frequency of smaller and larger events might change as society and the world changes around us. Because ultimately we like to put a number down to say you're at risk from wars and conflicts of this much compared to from earthquakes of another number and that should inform your approach to risk. So, so given that you, you are attaching frequencies to these uncertainties or these frequencies to which maybe we, we, we can identify as risks, what are the major sources of these potential risks at the moment? What are you identifying as the, the key issues facing the global economy or, or perhaps different regions of the global economy? Presumably all of these risks are not associated the same in different places. You're absolutely right. So um, this gives me a beautiful opportunity to mention the 2018 update of the Cambridge Global Risk Index, uh, which is actually based on uh, more than 250 cities around the world. So it's a global view of the economy through to 279, it turns out, cities. Um, these cities are chosen largely for their, um, their G GDP or economic powerhouses in the world. So it's a very GDP or developed nations focus. Um, but if you look at North America, contrasting with Asia, for example, you'll see in North America that um, threats relating to market crash, for example, and certain natural catastrophes, for example, on the West Coast you might have earthquake and on the East Coast you might have hurricanes. Um, you'll notice those things are, are quite high in the list. If you go into Southeast Asia, you start to notice multiplicities of natural catastrophes in the same region. So if you go to uh, Tokyo, for example, you're looking at tsunamis, earthquakes, exposure to certain um, wind events and rain events. Taiwan, similarly, the east coast of China, not unrelated. Um, and so the balance of risk might be higher in different areas in different regions. And the most prominent global risks at the moment? Well, one of the largest tracks of risk at the Center for Risk Studies is our look into cyber risk. Cyber risk is not really so much of an emerging threat anymore. It's a recognized threat. We know that cyber is real and things are happening with it. Um, at the Center for Risk Studies, we try to create this well-rounded and complete understanding of risk. Um, this includes tracking cyber trends, understanding the characteristics of malware and how it spreads because unlike some of the, the risks that Danny was talking about, cybercrime is international. It doesn't respect country boundaries. It doesn't respect even boundaries within a company. So what we try to do is understand that risk from every perspective because we want to know how to mitigate and essentially operational, operationalize that risk if we can. And so uh, I'm trying to understand I mean, our big focus now, as you say, is, is sort of cyber risk as one yeah. of them. Um, and also natural disasters are very high, highly prominent. If I were to go back 10 years, about 2008, 
most would identify the risks being economic. So it would be asset price collapses, financial crisis, where the, chi the Chinese economy was slowing down. These are big issues, but they seem to change very regularly. They seem to change across space, as you told us. Different cities face different challenges. And it seems to be we've got major global challenges this year, which are different to what they were a decade ago, and different to what they will be in another decade. I'm just trying to think about how do either individuals, companies, or the nation state deal with these challenging, shifting risk landscape. Why don't I pick up on, on one aspect? So there are two things, maybe it's what's near the top of the list, but I think what you've touched on is perhaps more interesting and more important. Are we able to um, have a baseline view? Or is it simply something that changes day by day, week by week, year by year? So on the, on the latter part, changing over time, this index has only been in existence since um, 2015. And the category that's um, seen the, the, the largest shift in that time has been geopolitics and security. And um, you would, the listeners will recognize this in the sense that we've seen unprecedented uh, political shifts, uh, things like the arrival of the Trump presidency, the Brexit vote, rise of populism, the retreat from globalism, all of these different ways of saying that somehow, at least in developed markets and developed economies, what we thought we understood about the way those nations worked no longer seems to be valid. Um, and this particular index uh, has gone up since 2015, in our estimation, about 35%. There's a fraction of that. What does that mean? Sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but what is it, if it's going up, are we becoming more a, a risky place in the world? Or? With respect to uh, geopolitics and security, yes. What, what we would say, the, the fact that a measure goes up, another way to say it is there's more uncertainty in the world specifically that you can attribute to the unknowns around uh, politics or geopolitics and security. Just, just for our listeners, how can, how can they access your index? Oh, yes, it's um, available. Uh, there are two ways to access it. We'll be launching it with Lloyd's. It'll be called on the 6th of June. And if you Google Lloyd's City Risk Index, you'll see all of our data and our analysis. And the other way is to Google for Cambridge Global Risk Index. And again, the launch date for the 2017 um, update is 6th of June. And, and just, just tell us a little bit about how it's constructed. Yes, so I mentioned earlier that we view the world economy through 250-odd uh, cities. There are 22-some threats uh, that we approach. And they, they vary from things which you can get your hands around, so earthquake risk, for example, the traditional natural catastrophes, through to things like market crashes, uh, pandemics, and then um, conflicts on a nation-to-nation you know, -nation wars, basically. Um, amongst those 22 threats, think of the, each, each thread as a hammer and each city as a bell. And in the analysis, we, ha we, we ring each bell. We ring 279 bells with the, the war hammer and then we go around and repeat with the different hammers and we add up all the damage. So at the end of the day, we have an estimate of the, the average exposure, if you like, of each city to each of 22 threats, as well as the total exposure of the world economy through these 250-odd cities to all of these 22 threats. And given these, these threats, how do companies deal with them? What is the um, best response for dealing for either risky or uncertain times? We still haven't quite got a common definition of that, I don't think. Well, we've actually moved away from where we started because initially we were talking about probabilities and um, we've been using the word risk in a very different way. Now we're talking about, as you said in a moment ago, exposure to certain events. I was just wondering, Danny, how much probabilities actually play into your measures and frequencies. Yes, we 
for better or worse, um, we do uh, try to model the probabilities in order to come up with an average. In other words, when we talk about an exposure number, we call it GDP at risk, the amount of economic loss you might be experiencing on average. Mm. And on average for us is how big might the damage be multiplied by, well, what's the chance you're going to have that damage? All right, so in some sense, it does you know, appeal to a long-term view. So even though it's gone up measurably in three years in geopolitics and security, um, that's a kind of, uh, if, if this world that we're in now were replayed over the long term, that's how much more risky it would be. And when you say uh, you multiply it by the chance, what is the chance? Is that based on a frequency? Yes, to an extent it's based on a frequency. If we have um, good data, as you might, uh, the insurance industry, because it's this money and it has, of course, been tracking the frequency and the damage of weather events. And we can, we can sort of back that out and say, well, damage now depends on what was there in the first place. And so there we do have, let's say, some idea of what frequency and severity might mean in terms of a probability distribution. Um, if you're talking about something like a war, even a pandemic is a little tricky, where we don't understand the process very well, we're in a complex system. Um, at some point we might say, if you look over a thousand or five thousand years of history, and you try to match events on a sort of a biblical scale, pestilence, war, famine, flood, and so on, you might say, well, conflicts do, do come along. And in the conflict basket, there are also at least two schools of thought. One is that we're in the long peace, as it's called, and we will never see World War III because the largest powers will prevent it. So actually the world has truly changed forever. And uh, some people who are more cynical would say, oh no, let's just keep waiting. World War III will arrive, we just don't know when. I wanted to also um, say, in response to what companies can be doing about it, we keep talking about probabilities and, and having information. Well, one of the issues that we come across at the risk center is, is as Danny kind of said, is getting our hands on that data. And um, with cyber risk, it's incredibly difficult to get your hands on that kind of data because data breaches aren't something that companies want to talk about. They don't want to say how many files were lost. In the recent you know, WannaCry attack, we have no idea how many actual companies were infected. We have no idea because companies aren't releasing that data. So, if we want to learn from these probabilities, we need to have them to begin with. And I think that's one thing that companies can be doing to help protect themselves is cooperation and sharing of that data to create these numbers that we can work with. Yeah, so and it's, it's really a, a twin problem. <laughs> the one thing is um, uh, getting the frequencies. Right. But the other one is um, once you have the frequencies for a certain historical period, you know, whether those frequencies remain the same for the future periods because, of course, everything is changing all the time. So you might have a situation in which for a certain historical pe uh, period, uh, people of a certain description have um, some rate of getting a particular di disease, which will be a frequency for that period. But, of course, physiology has changed and then, uh, then you might have a completely different story mm -hmm. for, for future periods. So. When we began, we had a very sharp distinction between numerical and non-numerical probability. And the point that Danny was making was right. That one should really think about it as a gradation. And there are some situations which is more or less like an experimental situation where you can derive something. But of course, the world keeps changing. And um, so rate of accidents with drivers, well, um, drivers might get better when they have cameras in their cars. And then the frequencies would change. In response to Michael's question, this 
um, is less about um, uh, discovering probabilities, but it is more about uh, what we call uncovering unknowns. So uh, one uncertainty we haven't uh, spoken about that much, it's been in the background, but not explicitly, is the kind of uncertainty which arises from events that occur that were simply not regarded as possible or regarded as impossible before they occurred or were simply not even um, on the radar as possibilities before, things that people hadn't ever imagined. And um, the, the idea in, in, in some of the work that I do is that um, some of the unknowns which may be out there, um, which we don't see, um, um, are things that we don't see because we suffer from all kinds of behavioral biases. So confirmation bias, for example, is something which um, might lead people to think in a certain way which prevents them from seeing things which are actually um, are quite possible and might affect them very much. And um, the work that we do is adapt ideas from the philosophy of science about exploring possibility spaces and putting them into heuristic form um, which businesses can use um, to, to expand their possibility spaces. It's never going to allow you to predict the future, but um, hopefully if, if you use a technique of this kind, um, you'll less often be in the situation which something happens and you think, I really should have been ready for that. I should have foreseen something like that. Um, another approach could be similar to what we do at the Risk Center, which is we create dis cat catastrophe scenarios. We try to understand catastrophes from every point of view. We look at it we create many variants, so we say, what's, what could happen? And then we turn the dial up a little bit and we say, well, well, what if this was different and what if this was different? And we try to add imagination to it so that we can create ideas of what, what really is the biggest impact because half the time when you say, this is definitely the most extreme event, you wait a little bit longer and a data breach is now doubled. You know, Yahoo had four billion um, records lost. No one thought that was possible, but you know that's broken every chart. So companies can kind of use that approach to you not only look at what what has happened, but let's look at what could have happened if some of the situations were different. It's a counterfactual approach to it. I'm trying to pick up on the, the practical implications. I mean, if I'm running a company, there's multiple forms of potential risks. They're economic, they're environmental, political, technological, social. I mean. Is there one strategy that can deal with all these multiple possibilities or do we need multiple strategies or is there just a, a way of thinking picking up from what Joachim was saying? Danny. Um, I'll give you a little bit of chapter and verse from the Risk Centre just to, just to keep it brief. Of course, we could expand any of these topics, but well, I think we would start um, in a similar position to Joachim. We would say, unless you have mechanisms to look broadly, you won't. So the first thing we we tend to write lists, so we're like the engineers compared with the ideal mind which Jochen has presented. So we would tend to write long lists and the 22 threats actually that I mentioned before for the Global Risk Index comes from a larger uh, set of 56 risks that we've identified, but we made, we triaged them, we thought 22 are probably the most economically impactful ones. Uh, and then within each uh, risk type we'll devise a number of exercises and often they're qualitative in nature, so the scenarios that Jen mentioned. and um, I don't know if you use the word imagineering, but um, Jochen, I believe that's, you know, you, you give kind of mechanisms for helping people think more broadly. I'm not quite sure how you term them. Mm -hmm. um, but we would, we would put that in the, let's call it the identification phase. 
So that's trying to be as broad as possible, which is not typically what a manager wants to do. They want to be focused and with, with trying to say that's not going to help if you're a risk manager. The next step, which is precisely what the Global Risk Index tries to do, it tries to say you're exposed to a variety, a universe of things. Could you say which matters more? Now that's a bit tricky, but we've chosen the cities and we've chosen this economic metric, GDP at risk, to try to say actually market crash and nation-to-nation uh, uh, -nation conflict, it turns out matter more, we believe, than cyber by this kind of averaging approach. For example, now once you've got that, you're at the beginning of a conversation where you could say, all right, my, for my system as currently constituted, if, this, if these threat types were remained with the same kinds of frequencies in future, maybe I should ask, am I more, could I make myself more resilient to a market crash or to an international conflict? That might be better for my organization in terms of spending my risk budget. So what is my risk budget? So at the end of this long chain is something called resilience. And although resilience has got too many definitions, for the purpose of this conversation, it's, it's a bucket of things you can do. You might have cash, you might have people, you might have expertise, you might have good standing in the environment. How are you, that's your resilience budget. It's, it's, it's more than one thing. How am I going to use that when the next bad thing comes along? And although the risk center tends to focus on bad external events, with many organizations, it's the black swan, it's the internal event. And so you would need to also ask yourself, well, am I resilient to you know, self-inflicted damage, the sort of thing at insider trading in a bank or something like that? It is a, a, a quite a, um, a top, topical issue, you know, the issue of resilience. How do you make firms resilient? How do you make cities resilient? How do you make countries resilient? Um, to me, resilience suggests how do you deal with reducing the impact of a negative shock? What about the opportunities that may appear? The, the, the potential opportunities from bad things happening may create some potential advantages for certain countries or companies. Yes, well, when we run scenario exercises, uh, one of the things, of course, we give them people catastrophe scenarios to jolt um, an organization out of complacency that the world is a nice place always. And uh, at first, people are looking at very operational things. They're looking at their own staff. They're looking at their own clients. They're looking at what... Will the regulator hurt me? Will society think I'm less of a good organization than I was? Um, and then eventually the penny drops that some organizations which are better organized, uh, better able to respond to certain events, might be able to use that to their advantage strategically. So particularly when you're talking to an investment bank, sooner or later the bank realizes, ah, I have a role here, which is I can be bridging finance, I can, um, or, or equity is the same, perhaps I can come in I can see a company which, which is on its knees because of the environment around it. And if we can just nurture it through this event, it's, it's a great prospect. So can I actually take advantage of that by maybe, maybe I can join the board, maybe I can put some money to it, maybe I can get it while it's cheap. Um, so that usually is a second thought, but I'm glad you mentioned it because the word risk, um, again, just in parlotable, you know, parlor conversation, really only has meaning with respect to something that you value. Risk doesn't exist in my mind as an isolated thing. It's always, there's a value somewhere out there. And unless you put both, if you make both of them visible, you can start to have a more sensible conversation about, you know, how bad is it and how should I deal with it? Uh, I think it was interesting that in, in previous responses, you both focus on imagineering, I think. Well, three of you, I think, mentioned imagineering in, in, in various forms, which um, did remind me a little bit about um, when the Queen asked some eminent economists why they hadn't predicted the financial crisis. Uh, they went away 
and wrote a letter after quite a few weeks, took a long time, and part of the response was a failure of imagination. Uh, and actually it may be that, uh, and it's having an imagination often in scientific or pseudo-scientific disciplines or arts and humanities is, is often a, a big challenge to have that imagination because we get stuck into a certain mindset and a way of doing things. And to, to think out of that is a, is a very difficult, very difficult for many, but certainly difficult for me. Um, so I think it's the, the importance of all of this to have the importance of imagination is an important thing. Yeah, so that's, that's exactly right. And um, what Jennifer was talking about having um, uh, counterfactual approaches, so thinking about thinking out, uh, thinking out of the box, and then not stopping when one has thought of some out of the box idea, but actually spend some time um, uh, trying to provide evidence in favour of that out of the box idea. And it doesn't doesn't matter um, often that that out of the box idea is not one that you go with, but in pursuing it for a while, you learn all kinds of things you wouldn't have seen before which can then inform other scenarios which, which are constructed. But, but very difficult to make businesses do that, I, I would guess. I mean, if, if academics often, fa often fail because of a lack of imagination, and we often have longer term time horizons, making businesses more imaginative may be even more challenging. Is, is, is that a fair enough? Well, it, it's fair, but the, the interesting thing about it is that it's quite common for businesses to engage in brainstorming sessions. That's not uncommon. And actually all you need um, um, beyond that brainstorming session is to um, give people incentives to spend a bit of time trying to validate their out-of-the-box ideas. And it's amazing what one can find out just in five minutes on Google if one is looking in places one hasn't looked before. And that's how these, this, this particular approach I was describing works. Just a sort of final topic, I just want to, like to sort of look forward. What, what do you think the major what are the emerging risks? Are there, what are the known unknowns? It might be difficult to do the unknown unknowns. What are the, what are the emerging risks? Is the world becoming a riskier place, less risky? Um, Jen, you mentioned, the, of course, the issue of, of cybersecurity, and that's very topical, but will we solve those sorts of problems? What, 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 what's, what's, on you, what's in your imagination in, in terms of the things that may be happening over the next 5, 10, or 15 years? Um, well, I think cyber risk is, is here to stay. You know, it's it's a constantly evolving risk, which is why I think I, I enjoy studying it so much. You're studying something, researching something different every day. There, you know, when you look at cyber risk under a microscope, you're gonna get something different happening, like I said, every day. But what we try to do is we, we take a step back and see over the year, you know, have different types of trends kind of emerged. And there's one that comes up now that I think you know companies need to really be paying attention to is an emerging risk within cyber, which is these supply chain attacks. It's it's third party risk, you know, securing your vendors and making sure, you know, not only is your firewall good, but you know the people who you give your network passwords to is that are their firewalls um, secure? You know, back in 2014 there was that huge. Um, data breach from Target, which is a U.S. retailer, they traced that back and it was because one of their air conditioning and heating suppliers had their credentials stolen and that was one of the routes the hackers took into their, their network. So as an emerging threat, which maybe has always been there but we're just seeing it as emerging, is not only understanding your risk but the risk you have when working with other people. Danny. Uh, one of the things that the risk center is trying to do is um, 
modelize or give frameworks for understanding trends. And you might have something called trend risk, but let's just say trends, whether it's uh, climate change or a uh, nifty phrase, the fourth industrial revolution. Um, they're sort of drivers of change. Uh, with it, climate change, we think we know where we might arrive at different times. With the fourth industrial revolution, we'd have to say we're much more in the realm of uncertainty than in terms the of The fourth risk. industrial revolution, are you referring to robotics and artificial intelligence yes. and the impact they're going to have? So uh, just a particular example, I don't think we should think about, well at least I prefer not to think about um, the rise of AI, so to speak, the fourth industrial revolution, as something on its own. It's going to be, it already is, intimately connected with lots of other things. So, so here's a, a slightly wacky idea, but imagine that 50 or, or 80 years of globalization is partially reversed um, as very wealthy countries uh, simply employ robots, put up very high walls, and go back to the old uh, Romanesque um, way of doing things, which was rape and pillage, uh, local commodities only. Um, but no, no need for knowledge transfer, no need for wealth transfer other than to buy a commodity at the cheapest possible price. And you bring it inside your walls and you let the robots do the work for you. So this, there's no longer a blue-collar workforce within the walls and there's certainly not much traffic of any variety other than money and the most basic of commodities between, between nations. And that's a, a very a kind of, in my, to my mind, a very uh, horrific sort of dystopian uh, world at a global scale. So globalization goes into reverse, inequality increases, and we become less connected. Yes, because you can, you can quote unquote, literally afford to become less connected as, the, as your needs cease to require other human beings. Good. And, and just on a, on a more short term, that's, a, that's sort of a pessimistic, dystopian uh, <laughs> view of the world, but, but um, one that we have to think about. Um, uh, in the more short-term future, um, tell us about the 2018 Risks, Risk Summit. Ah, so the, the Risk Summit is very much in line with um, the, uh, the theme that uh, Jen just mentioned. It's on risks, risks beyond boundaries. Um, and again, it's the notion that many of the things that we do uh, in human society aren't regulated by national constructs. It might be transfer of money, it might simply be media. Uh, and if, and mu much of this is facilitated by cyber uh, emerging digital networks and so on and so forth. Um, so trying to tackle that and ask, um, is governance up to this? Is governance purely local? Is it national? Um, what are the kind of international governances that work? And where are there still gaps? And I mentioned climate change before. It's pretty clear that the, the globe is trying to figure out how to develop governance that actually works for climate change. We're not there yet. That's just one example. But what about cryptocurrency or... What about social media, if I can be in one nation and influence the election of another nation, and so on and so forth. So these are, these are very important points. I should, should add that if you're listening to, the, to this before the 20th of June, um, you can find more details about the up-and-coming summit uh, on the Judge Business School's website. If you're listening to it after the 20th of June, you can find out more what happened uh, at the 2018 Risk Summit on the Cambridge Judge Business School's website. Well, we are running out of time. And I know my guests have got to rush back to the, to the lecture theatre, so I'd like to thank my guests today, Jennifer Daffron, Joachim Runder and Danny Ralph. You can find more information and more podcasts on the Cambridge Judge Business School website. Thank you for joining us and I hope you can join us next time.